We've been studying for the last couple of weeks the first three centuries of Christianity. Why would we do that? The reason why I want us to go back as a church and I want to go back and look at the original DNA in the original church. I want to go back to the standard, the way God set it out. And we've been looking at that powerful DNA that was present at the very birth of the church in 33 AD. Now, history is marked by Jesus' death on the cross. Even skeptics will admit Jesus died on a Roman cross. And there was a grave. And it wasn't a nondescript grave. It was a very well-known grave because one of the Pharisees, who was well-endowed, offered his grave. It was a well-known place where Jesus' body was put. They also will admit that, well, guess what? The grave was actually empty. There was an empty grave. And this is what it's all about. Then he rose and he went back to heaven. And by the way, when that happened, it changed everything. It changed everything that's ever happened. Previously, there were only kind of a handful of disciples, about 120. In fact, some people found Jesus' sayings so hard, so convicting, they said, oh, oh, this is too hard for us. We can't do that. And you know what he did? He let them go. He actually let them go. He didn't chase them. There was only about 120. So get this picture in your mind. About 120 people. That's what was there. After three years of Jesus' earthly ministry. Has that soaked in? After three hard years of work, if you wanted to average it, about 40 people per year. Jesus there. Yet within the next, then the death and the resurrection of Jesus, by the way, at the death, everybody ran away. They were chicken. All those people were, blah, 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 blah. apart from, I noticed, John and the women. Peter scarpered. What's going on here? Where's the leadership here? Anyway, so there we're at the cross next to zero. Yet within the next 300 years, because of the resurrection, those 120 believers had multiplied to nearly, uh, right uh, to a stage where they dominated the Roman Empire. Even the very pinnacle of Roman authority, which was Caesar, had become a Christian. Something happened back there. And if you're not a Christian today and you're trying to figure that, I would encourage you to go back and look at history. Something happened. Every bank in this country recognizes the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because every bank statement references his resurrection. 2019 AD, Anna Domini, in the year of our Lord. The whole world recognizes that. Something happened. And if you're not a Christian yet, I would encourage you to go back and figure what happened to change the entire timescale of history. And by the way, it went from there to now there's nearly 2.3 billion Christians. How did that happen? Acts chapter 2, if you're looking for it, is the story of the birth of the first century church. And it started on the day of Pentecost. I'm going to roughly, very quickly cover the first four points that I looked at um, last week. And I'm going to talk about the eight characteristics of real Christianity compared to phony or fake Christianity, which masquerades as Christianity. And we're going to look back so we can look ahead. That's the whole idea. And we're going to look at the hallmarks 
the things that the defining characteristics of the real thing. Here are the last four attributes of real Christianity from last week. And I'm going to give you four later on from today. You might write these down quickly. They're all out of the book of Acts, chapter 2. So the first thing we looked at last year, uh, last week, excuse me, was that real Christianity has real supernatural power. It's not, they don't just talk about God. It took supernatural power to raise Jesus from the dead. And it takes supernatural power. We don't just follow a book and follow some leader. We follow a living leader. Every other religion in the world has got a book and they try and do what it says. The difference between us and them is our leader lives and we have supernatural power. And this is what makes the difference between the church and every other organization. We have the Holy Spirit. Auckland University does not have the Holy Spirit. No other organization on earth apart from the church has the power of God because God has promised to give his beloved spirit to the church to grow and develop the church. The Bible says this, after his crucifixion, Jesus told them, do not leave Jerusalem. That's pretty strong. Don't do that until the Father sends you the spirit that he promised. And you can read about that all back in the Old Testament. So he says this, folks, you 120, I have got a mission for you. This is what I want you to spend the rest of your life doing. Do not get distracted. This is it. I'm going to go back to heaven, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit who will live within you and he will never leave or forsake you. From now on, I'm going to be within you, not just with you. Verse 8, then the Bible says you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you, what's the pa- notice what the power's for. And you will be my witnesses. That's what the Bible says. In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as they prayed, and as they waited for those times, God sent the Holy Spirit, and he gave them supernatural power to do what? To witness fearlessly. Fearlessly. With courage and conviction, Acts 2.1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. That's 120. And suddenly a noise like a strong blown wind. By the way, did anybody get that on, was it Friday? There was a ridiculous wind out in Howick. My rate went up in the air flying around like a mini tornado out in Howick. Suddenly a noise like a strong blowing wind came from heaven and filled the whole house. And they saw something like flames or fire that separated and stood over each person. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and they began to speak with different languages by the power the Holy Spirit was giving them. And Jesus is saying here, that when he does this, I... I'm the source of the supernatural manifestation. I will build my church. My church will be powerful. It'll be radical. And it will be multicultural. There are 15 at least cultures represented there. And the Bible says in this, when that happened, whoa, the people, everybody was filled with awe. Huh? Amazing. A supernatural experience, by the way, with God will change you. That's great news. It'll change you. The second mark of real Christianity is it uses everybody's language. Next verse. verse, Acts 2.4. They, they all. 
they all began to speak in different languages. So the Spirit gave each of them the power to express themselves. These are real languages. Like Chinese, or actually Arabic, or whatever, French. These had at least 15 languages. And what was the purpose of those languages? It was to get the all-important message of Christ out to the whole world. It was a miracle of multicultural communication. That's what was going on here. It was to share the good news, the gospel, why all this has happened with Christ's resurrection. And God is saying on day one, the good news is for everyone. It's amazing grace for every race. That's what he was saying. Multicultural. God says that real Christianity uses everybody's language to reach people with the good news. It's not evangelism, friends, until you speak. You need to speak. Otherwise, it is not evangelism. Number three, real Christianity, you may want to write this in, uses everybody's gifts. In the early church, there was no audiences. Nobody's sitting back, chilling out, crossing their arms and legs and waiting to be fed. There was an army focused on a mission with laser-like intensity and intentionality. There were no spectators kicking back. In fact, those spectators, you know what they did? They were the ones that walked away. Too hard for me. And Jesus let them go. You check that out. Convicting. There were no consumers in the early church. Everybody was a contributor. Everybody did something. Everybody was involved. Notice it says here, God says, I will pour my spirit on everyone. Just so we're clear, he spells it out. Who's everyone? Let me be real clear about this. Your teenage daughter. Your little son. Your sons and daughters will proclaim my message. That's what they'll do. They'll proclaim my message. What is the message? It's the gospel. In other words, God's going to use everybody to be a witness. Nobody's excluded here at the early church. Young men will see visions. It will motivate them forward. And you all men will have dreams. Yes, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will all proclaim my message. That's why the church grew with such intensity back then. They were all proclaiming him. That friend is God's will for his church today. It was back then, and his will for the church never changes. It is God's will for his church today, and on into the future, until he comes back. You see, everybody is a messenger. Every single person in this room is a messenger of God's good news. Everybody is a missionary. Tomorrow, you will be a missionary in the marketplace, Judy, as you're operating and helping operate on people. You're a missionary there. You're God's bright light in those areas. When you're valuing houses, you're out there talking to people, and you have the light of Christ within you. He wants you to be a missionary in the marketplace. Everybody is a minister. Nobody's excluded. That's how it was back there, and that's who he wants it here today. That's how they grew from 120 people to totally dominating the Roman Empire in 300 years. And Mario, you understand what a job that was. That's market domination. Number four, real Christianity not only uses supernatural power, it uses everybody's language, uses everybody's gifts, but it offers life-changing truth. Life-changing. 
Real Christianity offers life-changing truth, and that's found in the gospel. The truth transforms people. It destroys the lies that this world tries to baptize you with and wash over you with, and it tells you the truth, which never changes. I was just with a whole bunch of lawyers yesterday in a wedding. It seemed like half the place was lawyers. And I said to some of them, man, it must be really challenging when you guys are men and women of holding the standard and yet people are seeming to be diluting that standard. And they were all absolutely agreeing with that. The truth, that was something that was true a thousand years ago will still be true today and still be true in the future. Truth never changes. Truth transforms people. Jesus said this, the truth sets you free and only his truth will set you free because all truth is God's truth. We just get to reflect it. The early church offered the truth of God, which you cannot get anywhere else on this planet, and it was transforming. Look at this. God's intent, Ephesians 3, is that through the church, would everybody say that? Who is it? It's through the church. Let's say it again. Through the church. The manifold wisdom of God should be made known. That is God's will and his intent. Not through even parachurch. Through the church. Where else are you going to get that? No other message changes lives like the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, on to number five today. Real Christianity, another hallmark, is it provides loving support. I'm going to give you some biblical evidence for this. In the first church, they loved each other. And they provided temporary support for each other. They took care of each other. It was almost like, imagine today, that it was wartime. Just for a minute. Some of you are old enough to have experienced, or you know your parents experienced war. There's a certain pulling together that happens in wartime, and all those other frivolous things just die off in terms of, who cares? And especially if the enemy is on our door and about to invade us. All the other so-called priorities get dropped and get right-sized and you're focused on the here and now. The Bible says, and this is the context that the early church was in, it was a tough environment. But the Bible says that when people, the early church lived together, they had a support network, and it's called koinonia, fellowship. And the New Testament church was a fellowshipping church. It was ongoing, it was recurring, and it was habitual. Fellowship means that we care and we support for each other. We, we supply that. It means we're committed to each other as much as Jesus Christ was committed to us. Those who received Jesus Christ became partners with him and all other believers permanently. Why? Because we share an eternal future forever. And that's what they did. Look at this, Acts 2.42. They took part in the fellowship, sharing in the fellowship meals and praying together. Now I want you to look at the first word in that. What does it say? They. The Bible never envisions fellowship or, or, or the Christian life as one lived apart from other believers. That is heresy. It's not in the scriptures. They, collective, took part in the fellowship, sharing in the fellowship and praying. All the members of the body of Christ are to be actively and intimately involved in the local churches. The assemblies. The CEV version says they were like family to each other. 
That word family is really important. Over and over again, the church is called a family. It really is because here's, here's the deal on that one. The church family will actually outlast your physical family because it'll go on to eternity. In fact, the Bible tells us that we're to treat older men as spiritual fathers. Older women in our church as spiritual mothers. Other women in the church as sisters. Other men in the church as brothers because we are family. Believe it or not, Esther, we'll see each other in eternity. All the believers continue together in close fellowship, not separate, not distance, not walking at a distance. They were close. And the remarkable fellowship of the followers of Christ was such that they lost their sense of personal entitlement. They lost that sense of personal entitlement. The message paraphrase says this, they lived in wonderful harmony. Now, the one thing that impressed even the opponents of the early church was not how smart they were, but how they loved each other. Love attracts. And I'm going to give you something you've probably never seen towards the end of this message before that'll prove that. In shocking, startling clarity from somebody who lived back there, who's not even in the Bible, who is a philosopher and historian whose works we still have today. And you can look them up. And you can read the same book, the same manuscripts. Now the reason why that's important is everybody's looking for love. Unfortunately, friends, today, some people are looking for love in all the wrong places. Everybody has this need for fellowship, the, the need to feel that like I belong. That people accept me and love me for who I am. And they're not going to reject me even though they know my foibles or my faults or my frailty sometimes. See, the world's always looking for strength and power and position. Jesus was totally unimpressed with that. Totally unimpressed with that. The early church grew because people gave loving support to each other. Where did they provide it? Look at this. In Acts 2.46, be there. They met in small groups and homes. Today there's another sort of branch of, a very small branch of Christianity that says, oh, you need to get rid of all your homes and all. That's rubbish. The early church didn't. You need your home. Keep your home, please. Okay, don't go doing crazy things. That's not what the scriptures say. People who promote those ascetic type of lifestyles have not read the Bible. They met in small groups in homes <laughs> for communion. By the way, a home is to be shared. Any asset God's given you is to be used for the kingdom of God. In fact, when we buy our home, when we bought our last one, we said, God, would you please use this to advance your kingdom? We just get to look after it for a while. We're not even owners in one sense. We're a manager of it. That's all. And we'll be passing on some other stage. Use it for your glory. They shared in homes for communion and shared meals. Now look at this part. With great joy and thankfulness. That's why we encourage small groups. And this year we're going to try and have a strategic push. I'm actually in the process of doing a, um, a series on the, what they actually did in the early first church small groups. I'm going to teach some of that coming up. Why do we even think about small groups? Because the first church did. They met in the temple courts and they met in homes as well. And we want to do things the way the early church did things. Number six, real Christianity, not fake, pseudo, sort of like spectator Christianity, enjoys joyful worship. Enjoys joyful worship. Worship, friends, is a celebration. It's a festival. It is not a funeral. 
a festival. And in a festival, there's a light, happy atmosphere. We come to celebrate, not to commiserate. So we should, well, I don't know about you, but when I go into a party, I've normally got a smile on my face because I'm happy to be there. Church ought to be fun. You see, there's so much bad news and sad news out there in the world, and I don't know about you, every time I look at the news, it's who's got the, the, the best bad news? <laughs> that sounds a, like a very strange way of putting that. But there's so much bad news, that's why we need the gospel, which is called the good news. When I hear the good news, it makes me joyful. And church worship is to be joyful like we do here in the morning. And there can be two reasons why unbelievers don't become Christians. One is they've never met a Christian. And the second reason is because they've met one. <laughs> why is that? Why is that second one? That's a bit sad actually. Because some Christians, so-called Christians, so-called Christians, or very immature Christians, it's kind of like this. Let me put a quick sidebar, come to my mind there. Sometimes when you see a young couple with a brand new baby, and the kid is yelling its head off. <laughs> The other young couple who haven't got babies, they say, Jesus, I don't want any of that, thanks. <laughs> it's just an immature baby. Nothing wrong with a kid, but the fact is they're very immature. Now, here's the deal. Sometimes you find some Christians who are so easily upset. Oh, man, you say the wrong thing. They're all moo, pouty, and fractious, and angry, or they're legalistic. Bunch of laws, or they're judgmental. In other words, let me put it in a Buckley way, they're a misery guts. <laughs> They're no fun to be around. What I found, though, friends, is people generally in the world find joyful people attractive. Nobody wants to be around a cranky, negative, judgmental person. You know what they're like. You see some of those at work. Now let's look at real Christianity and compare it to that. Verse 46. It says they continued to worship together in temple courts. That's a large group like we're doing today. Praising God and enjoying the favor of all people. Friends, for the first 300 years, there were no church buildings. None. They, they borrowed things. They borrowed the Jewish temple courts. We borrow this building. They met, in, they, they, they met from how, in homes. But as time progressed, they actually met in secret because they were being persecuted. Actually, if you go to Rome today, you can go and find a place. Kimberly and I have been there. When, when we were there about 20 years beforehand, they discovered these catacombs some, because there's hundreds of thousands of people buried under Rome. And it was behind this per, um, like perspex glass. You could see it. You could see the whole deal. But there's crazy graffiti like, Peter prayed for us here. I can read Greek. Unbelievable. National Geographic did a huge thing on this. Huge thing. You can go back and look at those things. Go check it out, National Geographic. But the point of the matter was, as time progressed, they actually met in, 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 in catacombs. See, back then you could lose, like Joshua was saying, you could lose your life for becoming a Christian. That ups the ante, right? Your mother may have worried about you playing rugby. She'd worry more if you were a Christian in those days, but she trusted God and she pushed ahead. Notice the kind of worship. It says praising God and enjoying the favor. So-called praising and enjoying. It, worship was a happy occasion, and that's the point. They were unified. They were full of gladness and joy. And then it says they broke bread in their homes, and they ate together with, lovers, with glad and sincere hearts. You'll find that in Acts 2.46. Now, one of the reasons for this joy and gladness was the reality of the resurrection. 
What's just happened? The reality which led to a super sincere heart. No superficial hearts here. It gripped them. Actually, the Greek word means free from rocks or smooth. There were no stones of selfishness in their hearts. No stones of selfishness. Oh, I've heard this, you know, in many Christians' lives. Well, it's time for me now and to take something. Oh, be careful. Be careful with that. There was no jealousy or criticism. There was a simplicity and a wholeness of heart because of the reality of this resurrection. All that other stuff became relatively unimportant. So praising God produced joy. To praise God is to recite his wonderful works and his attributes to remind our minds, be transformed, be changed because of the renewing of our minds. And notice the first goal of the fellowship was to exalt the Lord and that when you exalt God, that produces true happiness. Those who glorify themselves, look what I've done, look what I own, look what I can do, will never know lasting joy. Joy comes from those who give glory to God. Because guess what? Without God's blessing, you wouldn't even have a thought or a heartbeat. Not even the next one. It's only his grace that gives us to us. So my point is, God wired you to worship. He wired you to do that. And he gave you emotions that need to be expressed. And if you don't worship God, friend, you will find another outlet to get excited about. To worship. Maybe it's Lady Gaga. Or maybe it's your next house acquisition. You're going to find something if you don't worship God. Something else will take that place. Why is that? Tell me this. It's okay for me to go to a game... Or even, I get excited watching my TV on my rugby game. And I yell my head off, ask my kids, as I'm cheering our team on. In fact, I got so excited once, I jumped up with my knuckles, and I hit the roof, and there's my ring imprint in the roof. (laughs) Just because I was excited about that. I wanted our team to win. I think we're playing the French. And boy, it was close. You know, I go to a game, I yell my head off, and and nobody thinks that's... Weird, that's because I'm a fan. I'm a fan of the All Blacks. I want them to win all the time. But if I come to church and I'll get excited, in fact, when I'm sitting here worshiping, I'm often wet. You ask my wife, I start to drip because I'm, I'm enthusiastic about that. But sometimes people think I'm a fanatic. No. Tell me the logic of that. So I'm allowed to engage my emotions in about just about anything except the most important thing in my life. I can get really excited about a game that isn't going to matter a week from today. Who cares? But I can't get energized by the fact that my past is being forgiven. I have a completely new purpose for living. And I'm going to have a home in heaven for eternity. Give me a break. No good logic there. See, these people were transformed because of what happened right there in that tomb. That's what changed everything. Radical change of mind. This is where joy comes from. And Peter mentions it in the sermon. He quotes David in Acts chapter 2 verse 28. He says, you show me the paths that lead to life. Your presence fills me with joy. With joy. Circle paths and presence. These are two things that give human beings joy. Because of the resurrection, because of what happened here, you have a brand new purpose for living. Not following second-class causes. You must provide for your family, but there's a difference between needs and greeds, and that's a discussion you have to have with your spouses. You know your purpose for living, 
And you can sense God's presence. Those are two things that will give you joy. And that's where it comes from. Knowing the path is now purposeful in life. And knowing the sense of God's presence with me and is with me right now. Acts 2.26. More Peter's Pentecost sermon. Because of this, my heart will be glad. Because of this, what happened? My heart will be glad. And yes, it's tough, but that out trumps, if you play cards, everything. That is a slam dunk. That's the joker. If you'd excuse the expression. Beats everything else. So if you call yourself a Christian... And you're mean-spirited. You're miserly. People will think God is mean and miserly. If you call yourself a Christian and you're cranky, it is not a good advertisement for God. For example, do you think if the way, if like in Acts 2.26 there, because of this my heart will be glad, my wives will be joyful, and I will live in hope. That's what people need. Do you think if everybody lived in our church like this, our hearts were glad, our words were joyful, we live in hope, that that will be attractive to unbelievers? Absolutely. They go, the reason why they're pursuing all these other things is because they haven't seen something better. Our church wants to focus on this joy. And the early church knew joy Because it knew it was going to be victorious. And therefore it was joyful. We've won! That's what that said. He's saying here, if my heart is glad and my words are joyful, I live in hope. I live in hope. And you all of us need hope to cope. And that's going to attract unbelievers. Some of you, friends, have lost your joy. And if that's you, can I direct you to pray like David did? He said this, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. The joy. If you haven't got that joy, it's because you've got your eyes on other things and you've forgotten about what goes on. Knowing all of this, number seven, real Christianity makes generous sacrifices. Real Christianity and real Christians make uh, generous sacrifices of time. They're not always in a rush to get on with their agenda. They make time. They have margin in their lives for God's. Kimberly could work five days a week. She's chosen to work three days a week because she wants to dedicate some of her life when she's not working to moving the kingdom ball down the field. That's a discussion that husbands and wives are going to get at different uh, different levels of their ability. Real Christians... Take the resources, whatever they are, that God has entrusted to them. And they become living sacrifices. So God, this is my life. How would you like me to use it? Because very soon, it will all be done. The fact that the resurrection, that it turbocharged, fuel injected and turbocharged the early church. It radically redirected their priorities. And everything else paled in significance. In the Roman Empire, the early church was famously known because they took care of the poor and they helped each other out. The Bible says here, all the believers shared everything with each other believers because they were family. Remember, they're in a wartime mode. That'll make sense of it. A wartime mode. They were being persecuted. It was referring to the genuine sharing and mutual meeting the needs of the now 3,000 believers, new believers. This is, they've all come into town, 
They've seen what happened. 3,000 people got saved. So now what we're looking at is Airbnb on steroids. Everybody goes, shoot, we want to listen to the apostles. We need to get more of this. Where are we going to stay? And you'll be saying, hey, come to my place, come to my place, come to my place. So you had 20 people in each of your homes and you're feeding them as well because they needed to get the, the lowdown on the apostles' teaching before they went back to their communities. That's what's happening here. It was a unique opportunity to learn from the apostles' teaching before they went back to their own towns as tellers of the good news. To get as much as they could. People owned their homes and they generously shared their resources with the new believers. Just happened. The Bible records this. And they would sell their land and the things that they owned and then give the money to anybody who needed it. The 3,000 plus new Jewish converts had embraced the gospel at Pentecost. But they were so gripped with the reality of what Jesus had done and done for them, combined with a burning desire to get the message out the door and the apostles' teaching and the impending destruction of their own city, the place is going to be leveled pretty soon too. That's what the message was. And the apostles' teaching of the destruction of the city in Jerusalem. Remember what Jesus said? Not a stone on will be laid, uh, will be on each one. AD 70, the whole place. Jesus had already prophesied this place is going to be nuked. So it's in other words, Jesus was saying to these guys, hey guys, this place is going to be flattened. So it didn't matter anymore. People opened their homes generously and they'd sell their land. So also some of the church were losing their livelihoods because they were being persecuted due to their professions of faith in Jesus Christ. So the rest of the fellowship helped meet their needs. This was a radical commitment to get the message out and support those. Again, it's a wartime mentality. Now you see how far the 21st century church has come off the, you know, in terms of off the desire to get the message out and you compare that back then to here? There's a difference, right? But there's actually a similarity. See, Jesus has told every one of us that soon our life will be passed. It's like a brief. It's like steam coming out of the kettle. Only what's done for Christ will last. So getting his life-changing message out is imperative. You've got an ideal opportunity right here. Gracia Burnham is coming on the 23rd of this month. Is there somebody that you're fixing on inviting, that you're thinking about inviting? This is a great thing to come and see. You will hear the message and the goodness of God. Can you think of somebody that you could invite to that? So this generous Sharing practiced by the early church is, let me be really clear, because some of you are a bit nervous, is not an early form of socialism. Not. It's not an early form of communism. Not. Wrong. Let me explain why that is. In a nutshell, uh, this is a very, very brief pricey. Capitalism says this, what's mine is mine and I'm going to keep it. By the way, that taken to an nth degree is very destructive. Communism says, what's yours is mine, and it belongs to the state, and we're going to redistribute it the way we want to. That's also a big mistake. So those two are flawed. Christianity says, what is mine, quote, is actually not really, it's God's. He owns everything, and I'm willing to share some of that. You see the difference? Christianity is always voluntary. It is not taxed. And it is not forced. It's not about law or legalism. It's done out of love. Christianity again says, what's mine, quote, 
really belongs to God, I actually don't own anything. I get to manage a few things for maybe 80, 90 years. God's given me this little bit. And I'm going to use some of it right now, and then it gets passed on to somebody else. So if he needs some of it to get his life-changing message out and support his people who are in significant need, go for it. Godly giving is voluntary. Never give under compulsion. Godly giving is generous, and godly giving is sacrificial. I noticed that when Jesus was at the temple, he deliberately sat right next to where people were giving in the temple. He sat right across there. It was so close he could tell what people were putting in. Unusual. And he called out the widow who put in a mite. He said, she has given more than all the rest. It's not to do with the amount. It's what you've got left. The Bible says here in Acts 2.46, by the way, notice they shared everything, not just money. Everything. Notice it says this, they shared their meals. I like that one. I like sharing meals. With great joy and generosity. Circle again, joy and generosity. The more generous you are, the more joyful you are. You know, some of the, some of the poorest people I've met in this planet are often some of the most joyful. And they've got next to nothing. Here's my question to you. Do you think if we went back to original New Testament Christianity, not the fake stuff, but the real genuine McCoy that has supernatural power, you would see changing lives, and uses every language and you speak to people the best you can speak, and you use everybody's gifts, women's gifts are used and valued, and men's gifts are used and valued, little kids, elderly and young, everybody's gift and talent is used for the kingdom of God to move the kingdom ball up the field. And if we offer the life-changing truths that frees people from destructive habits, their hurts and their hang-ups, and we share the true gospel, and we provide loving support for each other because we're a family, and we stick together as brothers and sisters. I don't know about you, but sometimes my brothers do some weird things, but I still love them and I still defend them. <laughs> Maybe you've got some other people like that too. So by the way, we're not talking about a perfect church. Because if you're ever looking for a perfect church, never join it because then there will never be perfect any longer. When we get together for worship, if we were celebrating and we're not commiserating, we have a good time, we have a joyful party, we enjoy God's grace. And then we generously sacrifice for each other and for the church's mission. Do you think that kind of church would reach more people for Jesus Christ? I think without a doubt. In the New Testament, they died for the church. Died. It's quite sobering as you go through those catacombs to read as someone were about to die. What they wrote. You can still see it. You can still see that to this day. They would rather go to the Colosseum and die a death with gladiators and lions than renounce their faith. That's how precious it was. They'd rather do that than betray their brothers and sisters in God's family. And that reminds me about the difference, to illustrate this, between involvement and commitment. It goes like this. If you're going to have a bacon and eggs breakfast, the chicken is involved and makes a contribution. The pig makes a commitment. That's the kind of hallmark Christianity is. Number eight, and finally... Real Christianity creates growth. 
When you do all those other seven things, the eighth will follow in your personal life. And in the life of the church. Notice his people liked what they saw. So every day their number grew as God added to those being saved. Now, what's, what's he talking about here? Unbelievers looked at those Christians, and you're going to hear from one of them in a brief minute. Unbelievers looked at them and go, whoa, those guys love each other. They're happy. That resurrection flipped. That profoundly affected their lives. And they've got a much better purpose than living. Here's some advice and evidence that the early church found favor of the people. And it can be seen as a testimony, and I would like you to hear today from somebody who was there. Their exact words. In a letter written by the philosopher Aristides to the Roman emperor in the early century. You can go check this out. It's from, next one, Oxford University. Don't worry about reading the Greek, just read the translation. Listen to what it says. This is a non-believer commenting. He's a philosopher and historian. Now the Christians, O king, by going about and seeking, have found the truth. They know and trust in God, maker of heaven and earth, who has no fellow. In other words, no equal. From him they received those commandments, which they have engraved on their minds, and which they observe in the hope an expectation of a world to come. Pretty impressive what he's observing. For this reason, the expectation of the world to come based on the resurrection, this is what he says. This is stunning. They do not commit adultery or immorality. They do not bear false witness or embezzle, nor do they covet what is not theirs. Ooh. They weren't seduced by that. They honor father and mother and do good to those who are their neighbors. Whenever they are judges, see some of them were Christians and they were judges. They are high standing in the political. They judge uprightly. In other words, they're not corrupted. They do not worship idols in the, made in the image of a man. Notice, no pictures of Jesus. Whatever they do not wish that others should do to them, they in turn do not do. And they do not eat food sacrificed to idols. Those who oppress them, they exhort and make them friends, and they do good to their enemies. Wow. This is impressive from a non-Christian. Their wives, O king, are as pure as virgins, and their daughters are modest. They're not wearing shorts that are almost like knickers, ah, and tops that hang down. I'm telling you. That's what he's saying there. Because boy, back then it was, you think it's bad now, it was bad then. Their men abstain from all unlawful sexual contact and from impurity in the hope of recompense that is in the world to come. As for the bondmen and bondwomen, that means they're slaves, and their children, if they are any, they are persuading them to become Christians. See, they're getting that message out. And when they've done so, they call them brethren without distinction. I love that. There was no class, well-resourced, underwell, with no distinction. The church of God does not have distinction between Jew and Greek, male and female like that. Listen to this. They refuse to worship strange gods and they go their way in all humility and cheerfulness. Wow. 
falsehood is not found among them. They love one another. The widow's needs are not ignored and they rescue the orphan and the person who does him violence. Did you hear that, Esther? She wants to get into that field. He was given to him who has not, ungrudgingly and without boasting. Look what I've done. There's none of that there. And when Christians find a stranger, they bring him into their homes and they rejoice over him as a true brother. They do not call brothers those who are bound by blood ties alone, but those who are brethren after the Spirit and in their God. When one of their poor passes away from the world, each provides for his burial according to his ability. If they hear any of their number who are imprisoned or oppressed for the name of their Messiah, they provide all of their needs. And if it's possible to redeem him, they set him free. In other words, they collect some money up and they spring him out of jail. That's what that says there. If they find poverty in their midst and they do not have spare food, so the poverty, but the people don't have food themselves, they fast for two or three days in order that the needy might be supplied with their necessities. Wow. They observe scrupulously the commandments of their Messiah, living honestly and soberly, as their Lord, their God, ordered them. What a testimony. Every morning and every hour they praise and thank God for his goodness to them, and for their food and drink they offer thanks. They say grace. If any righteous person of their number passes away from this world, so somebody's died, look what they do. They rejoice and thank God and escort his body as if he were sitting out from one place to another nearby. When a child is born to one of them, they praise God. If an infant dies, an infant dies in infancy, they thank God. The more, as for one who has passed through the world without having to suffer the effect of sin. But if one of them dies in his iniquity, or their sins, they grieve bitterly and sorrow as one who is about to meet their doom. Such, O king, is the commandment given to the Christians, and such is their conduct. The Apology of Aristides, translated by Rendell Harris, London, Cambridge, 1893. Friends, Jesus Christ, what happened at a resurrection can change your life irreversibly. And we're going to keep telling that message in increasingly expansive ways whilst we have breath. As I wrap this up, I'm going to the last verse, but it was the first verse we looked at. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of this earth. And friends, we need to take that verse very seriously because Jesus gave his life so that we may live and share that wonderful, life-changing message of Jesus Christ. Because the world cannot get that message from anybody else but us. Let's pray. Father, your resurrection of your son Jesus Christ has changed everything in the universe. 
May we live this week as real Christians representing real Christianity. Father, I ask you to bless and move each person forward in their discipleship. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.